we continue in our study in Second Peter. You will remember that in First Peter, he writes about the problem or a problem that may come from outside the church in the form of persecution. Here in this letter, he deals with the problem that comes from inside the church in the form of false teachers. As we've seen in the opening verses, we find the author of the letter, we find the audience of the letter, and a greeting. And after that, Peter begins, and through the rest of chapter 1, deals with what it means to be a Christian. In chapter 2, we'll find his warning against false teachers, and in chapter 3, the certainty of Christ's return. In writing about what it means to be a Christian, Peter sets the foundation in verses 3 and 4, the power of Jesus and the promises of Jesus. Last Sunday, we saw, in writing of the power of Jesus, Peter writes the following in verse number 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So we saw that Jesus sets the challenge for us and he meets the challenge for us. That is to say, Jesus not only sets the highest standards for Christians to live up to, that is a godly life, life and godliness, but he also gives us the resources to meet those standards, everything we need for life and godliness. As I mentioned, some people tend to look back at Jesus' life as recorded in the Gospels, and there they see the great power of God in his remarkable teaching and in his miracles. But Peter wants us to understand that Jesus' divine power is at work in the lives of seemingly unimpressive individuals who live lives that honor Jesus. As I was going over last Sunday's notes and preparing for today, I realized that there are those who would deny the power of Jesus as seen, or the power of God as seen in the life of Jesus in the Gospels. That is to say, they would deny that Jesus ever performed a miracle. It was all sleight of hand or people exaggerated, whatever it may be. Well, if they deny the reality of the power of God in the life of Jesus, then they are, in fact, denying the possibility that the power of Jesus could, in fact, come into our lives and have any impact at all. If we do not believe that Jesus acted with power during his earthly ministry, how can we begin to imagine that he can act in our lives with any significance? And some would say, well, well, he can't. Thus, their vision of what it means to be a Christian is radically different and is really reduced to what has been called moralistic therapeutic deism. And if you will allow me, I will take a detour here, digress a bit. The idea of moralistic therapeutic deism was first introduced by a book called Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. It came out seven years ago by Christian Smith and Melinda Denton. It's based on over almost 3,000 interviews with American teenagers, and they came up with what they saw as sort of a five-point system of belief that is common among American teenagers. First of all, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Secondly, God wants people to be nice you know, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Thirdly, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourthly, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And then lastly, good people go to heaven when they die. Well, if you think of these five points 
in moralistic therapeutic deism, the power of Jesus is unnecessary to living as a Christian. Because after all, we're supposed to be good and nice and fair to each other. And boy, that seems like something I'm capable of doing. What's interesting is that one writer in sort of critiquing the book said, I think that this is what America needs. This is what we need as a civil religion. Let me read what he wrote. Theologically speaking, this watered-down, anemic, insipid form of Judeo-Christianity is pretty repulsive. But politically speaking, it's perfect. Thoroughly anodyne, inoffensive, and tolerant. And that makes it perfectly suited to serve as the civil religion of the highly differentiated 21st century United States. Well, it might work as civil religion, but it is not the gospel. It is not the gospel. And in moralistic therapeutic deism, the power of Jesus is unnecessary. What is also unnecessary is what we find in verse number four, and that is his promises. Look, if you would, at verse number four. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. If if all we're supposed to do is be good and nice and fair, then we actually do not need his promises and really don't need to divine, you know, participate in the divine nature or escape the corruption of the world. Again, if you'll allow me to digress a bit, some years ago at Christmas time, we looked at the issue of promise. Because in the Gospel of Matthew, we find this word fulfilled time and time again. And usually, I think as modern people, when we think of fulfillment, we think of a prediction. Somebody made a prediction, and Jesus is the fulfillment of that prediction. But as we saw, it is not prediction that Matthew has in mind, but promise. God has made promises in the Old Testament, and Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. And we noted three things about promises. That first of all, promise involves a commitment to a relationship. That is, a promise is made between two parties two persons, if you wish, and it presupposes a relationship between them. And this promise may serve to bind them even closer together, but there must be a relationship. You must have two parties. It's quite personal. A prediction on the hand is, is, is quite impersonal. It doesn't require any relationship between the one predicting and the one about whom he or she is making a prediction. A promise is made to someone where a prediction is made about someone. In the Old Testament, we find many predictions. But more than that, we find promises, and promises involve personal relationships. The second thing that we saw is that promise requires a response of acceptance. If I make a prediction about someone, if I make a prediction about you, you don't have to accept it. You can say, well, that's fine. But if I make a promise on some level for that promise to have validity, you must accept it. There is a relationship that must must exist between us. We find in the Old Testament that God makes predictions about certain people like Cyrus. I call you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me, God says to Cyrus. On the other hand, he made a promise to Abraham and Abraham believed. There is an acceptance that is required. The promise comes at God's initiative. It is dependent upon his grace but we must respond to the promise. And then the third thing, which is, I think, really important, and that is that promise involves ongoing levels of fulfillment. You know, a prediction is flat. 
you know, it either happens or it doesn't. I mean, that, that's all there is to it. Um, if it doesn't happen, people may try to give various explanations for why it didn't. Maybe we didn't understand the prediction, or maybe it will happen later, or maybe it happened and we didn't know it. But a promise is quite different. Because it involves a personal relationship and commitment, it has a dynamic quality that, that continues. It isn't sort of this flat thing that we find with predictions. So, for example, when a couple get married, as Oscar and, did, uh, Oscar and Zib did a year ago, tomorrow, they make promises to each other to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Now, fulfilling that promise takes different forms. It makes different demands, calls for different responses as life and circumstances progress. The promise remains. You don't need to change the words. But the relationship does change as they grow closer together, as they mature together, perhaps as they go through difficulties or they go through good times. The promise is still there, but how it is fulfilled may in fact change. In God's dealing with his people, beginning with Abraham, we find a promise and different levels of fulfillment. We find patterns of promise fulfillment, fresh promise, fresh fulfillment. It is repeated, the promise is repeated and elaborated and clarified. And ultimately, as Matthew sees it, the big fulfillment is in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. So when Peter says that Jesus has given us great and precious promises, there is so much involved in that. And what are the promises that he has in mind? Well, there are two things. You may participate in the divine nature, and second, you may escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So I mentioned last Sunday, in this first promise, we find this is what upsets so many people, because they see it as a compromise with paganism. What does it mean to participate in the divine nature? Well, this would be a series in itself. Books, indeed, have been written on it. But we need to stop and think a minute. What is Peter trying to do in this letter? He's laying the foundation for what will come later, particularly in chapter 2. So he tells his readers what it means to be a Christian, a child of God. If you think about it, in creation we are made in the image of the Creator. But that image has been marred by sin. In redemption we are being remade or recreated in the image of the Savior. But what does this mean? What does this involve? Is it merely a matter of cleaning us up? People say, well, you clean up real good. I mean, God did something and you, you know, God cleaned you up. No, God recreates you. He remakes you. In the same way that resurrection is not resuscitation. And I think this is a problem that the Corinthians and, in fact, many of the Greeks had. They just could not understand the whole notion of Resurrection. How can you be resurrected if, in fact, the body turns to dust? Well, it's not resuscitation. It is, in fact, transformation, a radical transformation. And this is what happens when we become the children of God. He doesn't clean us up. He changes us. He transforms us. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. 
But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So we weren't sort of just corpses there, and then God comes along and sort of puts the paddles to us and shake, you know, shocks us and then gives us life, and now we are the children of God. It is a radical transformation, just as radical as the resurrection is itself. Because of that, we are given new life, a new nature, and that is the life and the nature of the Creator and Savior, or as Peter puts it in the first verse of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that we are God. It doesn't mean that we become God. We will always be creatures. But in redeeming us, God takes those who are made in his image, ruined by sin, and he radically transforms them by giving them new life and new nature, his life and his nature. Thus, by making them partakers of the divine nature and enabling them to escape the corruption of the world, we are the people of God. Then why do we still struggle with sin? If he's made all these great promises, why do we still struggle? Because we live in the in-between times. The process has begun. A radical process has begun, but it will not be completed until Jesus returns. We are in the already, not yet. I am a child of God, and on some level, radical transformation has happened, but it is continuing to happen, and it will be completed at the end of time. The incompleteness does not diminish the preciousness or the greatness of the promises. It does not mean that they are not valid promises. It means that we live in a time of tension. And we are to hold on to the great and precious promises until this new life and great and precious promises can ultimately be fulfilled. Now, in light of verse number four, and perhaps even verse number three, there can be a danger, a temptation to think that because I have this new nature and I have this new life, I'm a partaker of the divine nature, that if anyone, including the pastor, but particularly the pastor, begins to speak about law and obedience, that that sort of ruins it, that that really doesn't seem to be part of the equation. It's inappropriate. And what happens is, and it's very much in line with what we find in our society, being a child of God becomes an intensely personal and private interior thing. It's who I am inside. And because I have this new life, because I've been giving these, been given these great promises, then it's something very interior, very private and very personal. And therefore the gospel, for all the transformation that occurs, is not seen as having an ethical system except be good and nice and fair to one another, as we see in the moralistic therapeutic deism. This is not what we find in the New Testament. This is what we find in the modern world. If you look in the New Testament, and particularly in Peter's writings, what you believe and how you behave cannot be separated. We do, in fact, separate them, but they should not be separated. Theology cannot be taught apart from ethics. I think the great example of this is the Ten Commandments. 
and perhaps you have met people in your life who say, I'm not a Christian. They may even be an atheist, but they say, I hold to the Ten Commandments. I try to live my life by the Ten Commandments. Well, have you ever read the Ten Commandments? They begin with a theological statement. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. See, I would argue that many people who say that they live by the Ten Commandments, they treat it purely as an ethical system without any theology, and that is certainly not what God intended. We are not to separate our faith, our belief from our behavior and our obedience. But some would immediately respond, Damon, there are many people who do precisely that. And I would agree with you, but this is not what God intends. In terms of the Christian faith, they are, in fact, believing something different than the gospel that has been preached. That's what Peter will talk about in chapter 2. Those who say they believe something but live in an entirely different way. One of Peter's major concerns in this letter is that the Christian faith which is rooted in the truth, in the person of Jesus, is to make a radical difference in the way that we live and the way that we behave. We will begin today with verse number five. And we will find that it is faith in Jesus Christ. That's precisely where Peter begins a discussion of what it means to be a Christian. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. So in this progression, we begin with faith. And in doing so, it would be helpful if we go back to the very first verse of this letter, as we see that Peter is writing to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. As I said, when I went through that and then last Sunday by review, I see this as key to this whole book. The NIV says a faith as precious as ours. The English Standard Version says a faith of equal standing with ours. The New American Standard, a faith of the same kind as ours. And as we've talked about, Peter was one of the first disciples. He was one of the first followers. He was Jewish. He lived in Palestine. He is now writing to Gentiles who have not been to Palestine. They've never seen Jesus physically. And so there might be the temptation to say, we are not, our faith is not the same as yours. You were there. That, I mean, that's hardcore. And we're sort of, you know, we're second generation. Peter will not allow this. And so when he says you have a faith of the same kind as ours, this is critical to what we will look at in verses 5 through 7, because faith is the beginning point of this progression that he talks about. The anchor, the foundation, is faith, the same kind of faith as Peter's. This is the place to begin answering the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? Because one might well ask, if I have been given everything, why do I need to add anything? Because he keeps saying, add to this, add to this. Then on some level, that question seems reasonable until you consider two things. First of all, 
Peter gives us a list of seven virtues that we are to add to. Faith is not one of them. Okay, Faith has been given to us. It is a gift from God. We have been given faith. Now that we have been given this gift, we are to add to that these seven virtues that he talks about. The second thing to consider is the nature of faith. It is a gift. It is not static or inert. It is dynamic. It is to be alive. It is but the beginning point. There are things that should flow out of it. Once one has been given life, one must breathe. One cannot simply say, well, I've been given life. I don't have to do anything. Yes, you do. You need to breathe. You need to exercise. You need to eat. There are things you need to do. Life has been given to you as a gift, but certain things are required of you to maintain that life. Because of the power and the promises we have been given, we are to do what Peter writes, which is in the imperative, by the way. So he begins this section, verse 5, by saying, for this very reason, you know, because you've been given the promises and the power, okay? One might say, because you have been given life, breathe already. You are to breathe and do things, other things as well. The gift of faith, the gift of life from God, is not a call for passivity, but rather a call to action. When God gave Adam, or when he made Adam, what's the first thing that God did for him or to him? Gave him a job. He said, you need, you need to name the animals, you need to take care of this garden. We were not made simply to be here, we were made to do things. We were not made for inactivity. But let's be clear, before there can be activity, there must be life. We have been given life by the grace of God. We have been given faith. So we must be active, or as Peter puts it, make every effort. Some struggle with this. And the question that we've talked about before, who is going to be active in my life, God or me? It is, in fact, both. From Philippians 2, Paul says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Faith is the gift, the starting point. We are to live in that light and that reality. The verb that shows up once in this section is add, but it can be supplied for the others, that we are to add to this and then add to this. Um, For the Greek scholars among us, Audrey and Henry, uh, the word is an aorist imperative, which implies urgency. This is something you're supposed to do now. And the word itself in Greek is rather long, but the root word is the word chorus. As best we can tell, the image that created this word was centuries ago, a rich patron would generously donate to the town choir a certain amount of money so that they could train, they could stage a chorus. That, that is what a rich person would do, and then they would put on a public performance, usually in terms of a public or in the context of a public celebration. The image faded, but the word remained. I'll look ahead a moment, but if you look at the end of this section, verse number 11, which the Lord willing we'll look at next week, um, the verb is used again. Unfortunately, the NIV doesn't show us that. Uh, The English Standard Version is so helpful here. For in this way, 
there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So at the beginning of this section, we read that we are to supply, we are to add, and at the end of the section, we read that it is Jesus who richly supplies our entrance. I think Peter knows precisely what he's doing, putting these words as bookends. So in verses 5 through 7, we find seven virtues. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. You may notice that Peter begins with faith and, and ends with love. The use of a list was not uncommon in that day, and we find it elsewhere in Scripture, in James 1 and Romans 5. Um, also, the idea of connecting one to the other, you know, add to this, this, you know, add to your self-control, perseverance, add to perseverance, godliness. Um, this was very common in that day. This is a deliberately Christian list, but it is interesting that some of the terms that Peter uses are more common in non-Christian literature than they are in biblical literature. Uh, for example, goodness, self-control, and godliness appear only once elsewhere in the New Testament in the list. It would seem that Peter is taking language from the world and bringing it in, and he is using it to speak of what it means to be a Christian. Okay, he has established faith as our anchor, and now he gives us seven virtues, and let me talk about them briefly. First of all, goodness. It only makes sense that Peter begins with goodness because if you go back to verse number three, the last word in verse number three is goodness, who called us by his own glory and goodness. If we put our faith in Jesus, then we should want to be like him, and he was marked by goodness. The ministry of Jesus, his teaching, his example, his miracles showed goodness. When Peter preached for the first time to Gentiles, to Cornelius, he said how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing. Goodness is something that we should not be embarrassed by. It is something that marks the life of Jesus. The question is, what type of goodness are we talking about? Because after all, it was more of a pagan term than it was a Christian term. Peter points to Jesus and what he did. He is the ideal. He should be our example. As I've said before, we are not to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? which is very theoretical and abstract and wide open, we should instead ask ourselves, what did Jesus do? And in there we see his goodness, and we are to be imitators of him. The second virtue is knowledge. And as I've mentioned before, he uses two words in this book. This is a different word than what we find in verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, our knowledge of him. I want to be careful that I don't make such a distinction between the words. Um, I would say that verses 2 and 3 speak of personal knowledge, of saving knowledge, but I don't then want to turn around and say, well, what we see in verse number 5 is impersonal knowledge in contrast to personal knowledge earlier. Knowledge in Scripture is, by definition, personal. It is in the modern world that we think of, okay, I am the knower, and this is the thing that I know, and there is a disconnect between, in our knowledge, 
I know, but I don't have a relationship with that thing that I know. This is not a biblical view of knowledge. Knowledge in scripture is always intensely personal. And so information as knowledge is not what Peter has in mind at all. We are to learn about Jesus by reading scripture, hearing the word preached, in private worship, in public worship. But that isn't where we stop. We are led to action. As James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. To put it in modern terms, it is not enough to have information. One must act on that information. And as we learn of the goodness of Jesus, the one in whom we put our trust, we are to imitate him. The third virtue is self-control. And we find this in Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit. In that day, it was usually associated with sexual matters. But self-control need not be limited to that. It can, in fact, refer to the strength to say no to oneself in order to meet the needs of others. That perhaps something is okay for me to do, but others have a greater need than me, and so I will say no, I will control myself for the benefit of others. As we will see in chapter 2, the false teachers are marked by a total absence of self-control. If you look at verse 14 of chapter 2, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. There is to be self-control. But let us be clear, Christianity is not stoicism in which the, the emotions are practically denied. You know, To be a good Christian is not to be a Vulcan like in Star Trek where you, you control your emotions. That is not what it means to be a Christian. On the other hand, we live in a time when editing oneself before speaking seems to be a lost art. And that the impulse or the freedom to say whatever one thinks seems to be the norm. We are to add to our trust in Christ self-control. The fourth virtue is perseverance. And this points to a far-sighted endurance. This is to be added to goodness when it seems too difficult to continue, to knowledge when it seems that I know enough already, and to self-control when it seems that I have the right to do as I please. The struggle in these areas is not a one-time affair. It is, in fact, a daily struggle. And we are to follow Jesus in this regard. Listen to what the writer of the letter to the Hebrews said. This, by the way, is in chapter 12, after the chapter on faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I'm to add to my goodness perseverance, and I'm to add to it knowledge, self-control. Perseverance is to be there every step of the way. 
The fifth virtue is godliness. We saw in verse number three, when we went through it, that this was a very common word in Peter's day among non-Christians, and it was used to describe what they hope would be the result of their religious practices. If I, if I go to the temple enough, if I do enough sacrifices, I will become more and more godly. I will become, in a sense, more and more godlike. To them, it spoke of decency and honesty and integrity. This is not what Peter has in mind at all. What he has in mind is in imitating and in emulating God the Creator to have God likeness. We have we are partakers of the divine nature. We should be we should act as God would act in this world. The sixth virtue is brotherly kindness. And this is one word in Greek that I think all of you are familiar with, Philadelphia. Uh, the ESV has brotherly affection. And, you know, up to this point, one might wrongly assume that these virtues can be practiced privately and while we are alone. This sixth virtue, I think, blows that out of the water. Brotherly kindness points to a commitment to personal relationships, concern and time for fellow believers. There is no place in the Christian faith for a loner who imagines that he or she is privately spiritual and in touch with God, and therefore not in need of anyone else. You may remember from 1 Peter chapter 1, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. We are to love one another. And then we come to the last virtue, number seven, love. One might imagine that Peter has somehow forgotten, because he's dictating this letter, that as he's waiting for the scribe, the secretary, to catch up, he's forgotten that he already said Philadelphia, and and then he throws in love again. No, Peter knows precisely what he is doing. If the sixth virtue, brotherly kindness, pulls us kicking and screaming, out of the caves of our private spirituality into the congregation of the people of God, we might say, okay, okay, I'll hang out with those who are the people of God. But this last virtue will not allow us to stay there. It pulls us further into the human community at large. The love that Peter has in mind is for those who are not my brothers and sisters. I am to have brotherly affection. We are for one another. But that's not where it stops. The faith, which is the, the foundation to everything, all these things are to be added, and we don't stop at church or with fellow Christians. There is the seventh virtue, and that is love for those who are not the people of God. And in this, we are to follow the example of Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, we have the story of the rich young ruler, as it is known. We hear of a man who came to Jesus, and he asked, Good teacher, what must I do to in- inherit eternal life. When Jesus told him he must keep the commandments, he answered, Teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Then we read these amazing words. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. 
Someone told me many years ago that he was convinced that this rich young ruler eventually became a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. I said, well, how do you know that? He said, because Jesus loved him, and Jesus would never love someone who was not his own. Oh, we're supposed to love non-Christians, but Jesus didn't? I don't think so. And in Mark 10, we have this amazing story. Jesus knows this man is going to walk away because of his great wealth. But Mark tells us Jesus looked at him and loved him. Peter says that we are to love one another with brotherly affection, but we are to love those who are not the people of God. And in doing so, Peter points to Jesus and he says, love those around you. So what does it mean to be a Christian? It all begins with faith, that amazing gift from God that enables us to put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. And having been given the divine nature, a new life, a new nature, we are now to make every effort to add to this goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And we are to look to Jesus as our example. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the amazing gift of life, of new life through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the great and precious promises made to us. We must confess, though, that we would probably be more comfortable with a very private faith that required little or nothing of us. But that is not the way things are. In the same way that our human life requires effort on our part, we are to breathe and eat, exercise, sleep. We must do things to maintain that life. By your grace, we are, in fact, to add to what you have given to us. We are to act on what you have given us. And what we are told is that we can't keep it to ourselves. Being a Christian doesn't simply mean an intensely personal experience, a personal relationship with you, though there is that. But it involves how we deal with other people, how we deal with one another as Christians, and how we deal with those who are not your people. May we look to your Son, the Lord Jesus, the supreme example in all these things. His goodness, his knowledge, his self-control, all of these virtues, and supremely his love. How else could he cry out on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We thank you for new life. By your grace, may we act in that new life as we should. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.